0: BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely.
1: From KQED.
2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, the holidays are over, and if you're like me, you alternated between trying not to look at the latest COVID news and doom-scrolling the latest COVID news, trying to piece together how much Omicron had changed the world. Here's what we know. Cases are skyrocketing across the U.S. Despite all the delays and data from the holidays, in the hardest-hit northeastern states, more than three times as many cases are being confirmed as last winter. But what do those cases mean? Will hospitalizations and deaths follow in lockstep? And when's this Omicron surge going to end? So many questions remain, so we've got an expert panel to help you sort through the latest. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's hard to believe, but it was less than six weeks ago when no one was talking about Omicron Even people at NPR had to figure out how we were going to say the word. But in the six weeks since scientists in Southern Africa sequenced and reported the new variant, it's dominated headlines and case counts across the world. Delta, which had become dominant across the globe, was shoved aside by Omicron within just a few weeks of landing in any new area. Just in the last 30 days, more than 50 million people have tested positive for COVID in the U.S., We don't know everything about the variant now, but we know a lot more than we did six weeks ago. Yes, Omicron moves as quickly as epidemiologists feared it would. And maybe, maybe, for one reason or another, it's less lethal than its predecessor variants. Now we need to understand what these new conditions mean for our lives over the next few weeks and months. And joining us to help us get our bearings are two of the most brilliant communicators about the pandemic. Dr. Bob Wachter is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Welcome, Dr. Wachter.
3: Thank you, Alexis. Good to be here.
2: And we have Jessica Malati Rivera, senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute and former science communication lead at the COVID Tracking Project at The Atlantic. Welcome, Jessica.
4: Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So let's start local. Dr. Walker, can you give us the update from UCSF?
3: Yeah, uh, we have seen a remarkable increase in uh, our, our testing positivity rate. One of the numbers that I like to go to is we, we test everybody who comes in the hospital for anything, for a heart attack or cancer surgery or getting a medical procedure And that is my sort of poor man's way of of trying to figure out what's the percentage of people, a regular person you run into on the street in San Francisco who's positive. And that number has been as low as 0.2%, meaning one Hmm. in uh, 500. Today, it's up to about seven or 8%, meaning that one out of about 12 or 13 people Hmm. Uh, who were testing, who feel fine, who have no symptoms of COVID, are testing positive for COVID. Our hospitalizations had stayed steady, and then about seven days ago, they started going up, and they've doubled since a week ago, and they seem to have plateaued over the last few days. We'll see if that's an artifact of the holiday, uh, but uh, we're nowhere. We're not seeing the kinds of surges that people are seeing elsewhere in the country, but we are, definitely are seeing an uptick uh, because of Omicron. Yeah. Jessica, we know,
2: uh, as Dr. Walker mentioned, that the data and and also the behaviors of people over the holidays are different, but the data certainly gets messed up. So it'll be a while before we really know what happened at sort of regional, state, national levels. But what numbers can we look to over the next couple of weeks that maybe might be more stable or give us an indication of where things are going?
4: Right, I think that you know a lot of people right now, their eyes are gazing at these giant numbers that are upwards of two times what they looked like in January of 2021 and panicking but we expected that right that's the holiday effect that's the testing effect that's the fact that omicron is super transmissible and a lot of people are testing positive but you know similar to what we were looking at at covid tracking project for so long my eyes are on hospitalizations i want to see what those trends look like because that's kind of as close to a real time indicator of what's going on on the ground as we can get and we are concerned that hospitals are starting to send signals, uh, crisis care signals, that triage is having to have uh, different routes because there's too many people and capacity is exceeding the norm and the National Guard is being deployed. That's in some places, but we're watching to see if it happens nationwide.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Walker. I mean, the vaccinations and, and in particular places that are heavily vaccinated, it seems like they're holding up okay, like say in the Bay Area?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think when I talk to colleagues in Cleveland or New York or Houston or Miami, uh, we are seeing a surge here, but nothing like what they are seeing. And I, I suspect that it's a combination of the fact that the Bay Area is the most heavily vaccinated region in the country, which means... Uh, There will be a lot of breakthrough cases. We're all hearing about them, friends and family uh, getting cases, even though that they've gotten two or in many cases, three shots. But by and large, those people don't get very sick. And so there is this real disconnect in places that have a lot of vaccination between cases that are skyrocketing everywhere and really sick people, which we're seeing some, but most of those are in unvaccinated people. We're also seeing a new phenomenon actually two new phenomena in the hospital. One is because our healthcare workers are Mm. uh, so highly vaccinated at UCSF, everyone is, Um, as they get breakthrough cases, which they do, and they don't get them from the hospital, they get them from the rest of their life, they've got to be out of work for some period of time. So the stress that we're feeling at UCSF is not the hospitalized patients with COVID, of which we have about 45 out of 700 beds. So it's not not a huge deal. It's that, uh, can we staff the ER, can we staff the ICU if so many doctors and nurses go out? The second phenomenon, which is a brand new phenomenon for us, is this idea of, are you hospitalized for COVID or with COVID? With so many people testing positive, uh, just incidentally, who feel fine. There is going to be some percentage of people who come in because of their stroke or a heart attack or something else who are going to have a positive COVID test. Now, that's not nothing. We have to put them in isolation and it takes longer to care for them. And we've got to do some things that we wouldn't have to do. But it is not stressing the system the way uh, a, a comparable number of patients, all of whom were sick with COVID pneumonia, would cause. And so it, we, we're not able to parse those two numbers just yet, although I suspect we will be in the next few days. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and some people have been trying to track that number for for a long time. And at least in previous waves, it seemed like it was um, you know, a, a marginal effect rather than now when we have so many more people with immunity. Um, Dr. Arter, you also walked sort of like right up to talking about the CDC announcement um, that asymptomatic people could end isolation uh, not after 10 days, but after five. That's the new guidance. What do you think about that new guidance given what you said about what's happening at the hospital and your workforce and do you, do you agree with it or do you feel like that was um, a step too far?
3: Yeah I, th- I understand it uh, you know if, if all of if every doctor and nurse or other essential workers in other industries has to be on the sidelines for 10 days I really worry about can we staff the ER I mean can we staff our clinics can we can we take care of patients and that of course creates its own harm. And because so many people today are walking around on the street, they feel fine, but they actually have COVID. And they some of them are infectious. Um, uh, you know, you, at some point, you say that let's try to come up with a number uh, that the vast majority of people are not infectious by that number of days, and then insist that they wear a mask for the next several days after that, to, in case they still have a lingering amount of virus. Now, I believe that The state of California did the right thing and the CDC did the wrong thing. And the state of California said five days, but then you have to do an antigen test. You have to do a rapid test and it has to be negative. Mm -hmm. And what will happen there if people do that is the majority of people will test negative on day five and be able to go out. And resume their life wearing a good mask, and I think the CDC should have been clear about that. You should, you really should be wearing an N95 or equivalent if you go back out to uh, into the workplace. Um, uh, but if you still test positive, the antigen test is a very good test. If you're testing positive on day five, you still are infectious. You may be low level infectious, uh, but you are. That's what. So California basically said five days. If you test negative, you can go out wearing a mask. If you don't test negative, you need to stay in isolation. Until you do, I think that <clears throat> I think that's going to be the smarter smarter call, and I suspect the CDC is going to go there in the mm-hmm. next few days. You heard Fauci hinting yesterday that they're they're rethinking their guidance.
2: Jessica Malati Rivera, what do you think about the new CDC guidance? I mean, um, Rachel Olensky, One of the reasons she gave for it was that only thirty percent of people they they estimated were actually following that uh, isolation guidance. Um, but was that a good enough reason to, to change?
4: no in my opinion excuse me no i mean it's it's the let's try to find the number of days that makes it work that makes me uncomfortable and making rules easier so that you can increase compliance is not a public health strategy it is in some cases when you're dealing with harm reduction and risk reduction but in the context of a highly transmissible variant in the context of a huge surge and unprecedented surge It's not the time to modify the rules just to make them easier to follow. Now, I am encouraged that there was hints of adding the testing out of uh, isolation strategy. That should have been there from the very beginning. I, I really, I have not seen the data to justify one, the you know 50% reduction and also the just complete disregard for testing out. That has been a strategy used uh, for travel eligibility, for employment eligibility, for people to go back to work. So it's it's a mystery to me, really, uh, even the kind of suggestion that it's not a good predictive value for an infectious mm-hmm. uh, people. It very much is. If you have a dark pink second <laughs> line on your antigen test, chances are you've got a high viral load and you are a risk to others and should stay home.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just in my own personal experience, when I had Delta, um, I tested with an antigen test every day after my first positive test, and it was only on the eleventh day um, at which I, I I finally was was clear on antigen tests, which just gave me an an idea that you could stay infectious for quite some time, even when like in my case, I had extremely mild symptoms, never even got a fever. Um, so that was a, a, a tough lesson. Um, a comment here from John. Is it fair to say that nurses, doctors and support staff are being sacrificed to keep the economy open? They appear to be overused resources trying to keep us safe. Also, how does a five day quarantine period support findings reported by Taiwan's Philip Lowe, deputy head of the CECC Medical Response Division, who stated that it can take up to 12 days to clear the virus before quarantine? Dr. doctor, just before we go to the break, do you want to reflect on what? these new rules mean for, you know, kind of taking care of our healthcare workers?
3: Yeah, I I guess I don't see it that way. I think that we've got a really difficult balance to try to figure out here that if you say everybody has to stay in isolation until 100% of people are going to test negative, then you just have too many people out of commission. And this is really not about the economy. This is if you come into the emergency room with a heart attack or a stroke, is there somebody there who can take care of you? Mm-hmm. And so we've got to come up with a balance. And I think five days, a lot of people will test negative by day five. And so if they are testing negative, and particularly if they then go ahead and wear an N95 for the next five days, that's a perfectly safe strategy. And you've you've taken a lot of people who otherwise would have be been out of commission and put them back in the workforce. That's not about the economy. That's about people's health and keeping people safe. So I think it's a reasonable balance with testing, but I'm with you, uh, Alexis. If you're still testing positive on day five or six or seven, you should still be out of commission (laughs) until you start testing negative.
2: What are your Omicron and pandemic questions? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're joined by Dr. Bob Wachter from UCSF and Jessica Malati Rivera from the Pandemic Prevention Institute. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the latest COVID-19 news and hearing what we can expect in this latest phase of the pandemic with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, of course, and Jessica Malati Rivera, senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute and former science communication lead with the COVID Tracking Project at The Atlantic. Um, We have some questions coming in, which we're going to get to in just a second. First thing I want to make sure that people get across, just as a public health measure, uh, uh, Doctor Walker, can you just walk us through, like, what mask should people be wearing? We've gone over it a million times, I know, but I just it felt like I went to an airport this over the holidays, and it felt like there was a mix of people between, you know, those who had like three masks on and people who had like a T-shirt over their face. Um, so, <laughs> what what should people be wearing?
3: Let's, let's let's the t-shirt over the face is not the right call. Let's start there. Um, I wear I wear an N95 or the equivalent KN95 and or, or anything that has ninety four and ninety five in it. Uh, pretty much anywhere uh, I go now, when I want to wear a mask, it seems silly to me to not wear the best possible protection. Uh, if you're if you're wearing a mask and you should be wearing a mask when you're in indoor spaces and pretty much most of the time. So uh, I didn't do that until a month or two ago. I felt like um, if I wore a surgical mask and then a good tight fitting cloth mask on top of it, that gave a level of protection that's not far off the N95. But since Omicron is so much more transmissible than than the prior variants. It just seems like the right call is the virus has upped its game. We might as well up our game and wear a mask that gives us a fighting chance of keeping the uh, the virus at bay. I think it's also, in the beginning, the only N95 I had access to was the kind I wear in the hospital. And it's frankly pretty uncomfortable to wear that for four to six hours. The N95s you can get now, or the KN95s, are pretty much as comfortable as a surgical or a cloth mask. It's just not a big deal. Why not wear the better mask? Diane from Oakland has a mass question here. Welcome to the show. Um, the KN95
1: is okay because they all say not for medical use on, on the packaging.
3: Great question. And, yeah, they, and uh, it
1: says for particulate use, for smoke and kitchens and that kind of thing.
3: Well, you definitely don't want to use one that has a, a valve, the kind that uh, sometimes people use in, in fire season. But, um, yeah, no, the, the 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 KN95s are fine. I, you know, there are counterfeit masks out there that are not. There are some websites that you can look up the quality of the mask, but the kind that you can, if you go on Amazon or some other site and look up the reviews of the mask, you can find one that, that works well. And I wouldn't pay attention to what it says on it. If it says 94, 95 on it, that means in, in general, it's filtering out, you know, 19 out of 20 particles. And that seems to be enough to uh, to prevent transmission in pretty much all circumstances. Thanks, Dr. Walker.
2: Jessica, a question from a listener. Robert writes, we keep hearing Omicron poses a less severe threat. How about its impact on spreading long COVID cases yet? Do we have any handle on that yet or any data?
4: I don't think we do. I think that, you know, we know that the the variant that causes the variant Omicron still causes COVID-19 as a disease, it's still SARS-CoV-2, and we know that the risk is high for long COVID, especially if you are unvaccinated, Um, but because Omicron just recently emerged uh, in as recent as November, um, earliest reports for that variant, we haven't seen enough data to show that people who've been infected are experiencing long or kind of prolonged symptoms, but I would imagine, especially those who are unvaccinated, are at a greater risk Uh, as they were with other variants and the original, the original wild type virus. Mm
2: -hmm. And Dr. Wachter, do we know more about long COVID or does it still feel like it's in this sort of cloud of kind of symptoms and timelines and it's been difficult to figure out what to think about long COVID, though we know that it is something that like a lot of people are experiencing?
3: Yeah, I mean, a number of my colleagues are doing terrific research on it, and, and, and my sense is that it still is a little bit up in the air, how much of it is from persistence of infection, how much of it is from your immune system reacting in a way that that causes you harm, and how much of it we just don't understand. Um, it's, it's real. There's no question that, that a fair number of people have symptoms that last for more than a month or two, and there are now people who have symptoms that have lasted for more than a year. Um, it's also a tricky thing to study. Obviously you do, if you sur- do surveys of people and ask them, do you have fatigue or brain fog? I, you know, I might answer yes on some days. And so it's, it's a hard thing to study and to be sure about. I go with the, the, the general numbers of five to 10 or so percent of people continue to feel crummy a month or two out. And that's real enough, you know, when people say to me, well, you know, you've gotten three vaccine shots, you're not going to die of COVID, you know, why are you fretting so much? And the answer partly is I don't want to catch it and spread it to somebody else. The answer is partly even if you don't get sick enough to go to the hospital or die, plenty of people feel like they've been run over by a bus. And the answer is partly that I think there is some small but non-zero chance that you get COVID and you'll still feel uh, terrible six months or eight months or a year later. And all of those are good reasons to try to avoid getting it. And then there's the new narrative, of course, Alexis, that we're all gonna get Omicron, you might as well do, you know, fill in the blank, as to whatever, whatever uh, throwing caution to the wind looks like. And I think that's just wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. if you are unvaccinated, and you're not being careful, you're not wearing a mask, then you are going to get it, it's inevitable. That's how you will get your immunity. But for people who've gotten, uh, particularly if people have gotten three shots, if you're out there being ca- careful, wearing the right mask, uh, avoiding big crowds, I think there's a pretty good chance you will dodge this bullet. And I think you'll probably only have to do that for uh, four to six weeks and uh, when we'll be on the other side of this. So I still think it's worth trying not to get it in part because of the possibility of long COVID.
2: Jessica Malati Rivera, where's your sort of personal risk meter? We just heard Dr. Wachters there that now is a good time to sort of batten down the hatches because it may be that based on previous surges, we just have some few weeks to get through here. What's happening with your own behavior?
4: Right. So there's definitely a degree of anxiety in the fact that I've gone this long without contracting COVID-19. And to to think about getting it seems like somewhat of a failure, but I understand that that's wrong thinking. I, I recognize that... know the odds are not really in anyone's favor at this point given the high transmission but i have throughout the pandemic had a pretty low tolerance for risk mostly because i have young children i have a daughter who's five who's fully vaccinated but i also have a three and a half year old who's not vaccinated yet and so a lot of our risk decisions that we make as a family center around our son who we are eagerly anticipating that approval and that extension of the eua so that he can be more protected and so we keep things really low key here. Um, I do think that it's important to remind people like Dr. Walker said that getting an infectious disease is not a public health strategy. We don't want to be encouraging people to get it as a means to kind of get across mm-hmm. that milestone. Um, and I certainly don't want to get it too, uh, mostly because I don't know uh, what could happen to my children. I think Statistically speaking, it's probably going to be mild, but I don't want to take that risk. And so, mm-hmm. and I always preface the way that I communicate about my decisions in that my risk tolerance is admittedly very, very low. Um, so we are mostly homebodies these days.
2: <laughs> Let's bring in uh, Tanya from San Carlos. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Uh, first, I want to thank you all for your service over the last couple of years. I've gotten a lot of good information from you. Um, So I have a question about the uh, children under five. So there's a lot of talk about the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Can you talk about how that applies to two to four-year-olds since they can't get the vaccine? What is the risk of severe COVID or long COVID? And are the pediatric hospitalizations that we're seeing because of COVID or because of toddlers coming in for another reason and then happen to test positive?
2: That's a great series of questions, Tony. Dr. Wachter?
3: yeah you know the the children under five i are almost a a completely different group when we talk about the pandemic of the unvaccinated i think it has it has a pejorative spin to it because for the most part if you're unvaccinated by now you've made a choice and i think a terrible choice but you've made a choice to accept certain kinds of risk and i think we almost should immediately qualify that and and say there are people who are unvaccinated because they can't be vaccinated, and, and the kids under five are the biggest group there, and people who are unvaccinated because they're immunocompromised and they got vaccinated, but it didn't, didn't stick, and that's 7 million people in the United States. So those groups, uh, it's not a matter of making a choice. They, they, they simply can't get the immunity that the rest of us really have been privileged to get. Um, in terms of the risk, I, you know, I think most of us are... Aware that the kids tend to be extraordinarily safe, the chances of a kid getting very sick and going to the hospital are very, 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 very low, but not zero. There's no evidence yet that 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 Omicron is more severe in the little kids than the prior variants were. It just looks that way because because the other populations now are are mm-hmm. so well protected because of of their vaccines. Um, There is that risk of that autoimmune process uh, that we heard about early on. That's turned out to be a, a threat, but not a massive threat. And so, you know, as I think as Jessica said, unfortunately, the best we can do for the kids is wrap them in a cocoon of vaccinated people who are being careful around them and hopefully get to a point where there's so much immunity in the population, and I think there probably will be from Omicron because everybody is either going to be vaccinated or will get it, uh, and or a vaccine comes out for the little kids that keeps them safer than they are now.
2: We're answering your questions about this latest phase of the pandemic with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and Jessica Malati Rivera, senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. Let's bring in Erica from Pengrove. Welcome to the show, Erica.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, I just have a question. I'm not against vaccines at all, but um, this is an emergency CDS approved vaccine. And there is schools now starting to mandate that kids have to be vaccinated. And I have an eight year old and I'm a little concerned because there's we don't know the side effects. Or do we? Because, I mean, normally I've read about it six to eight years to develop a vaccine. But CDC has emergency uh, approved it. But that means that it's not fully
4: approved.
2: Question. Yeah, Erica, let's uh, take that one to Jessica Malati Rivera.
4: Yeah, so totally uh, understandable question. Um, I do think, though, that there is a bit of a misconception as to what an EUA actually is. It is not a kind of less robust process for review. It is in the context of an emergency, which we very much are in. We are in a public health emergency, which is why we have these opportunities to expedite the process for review. The same thresholds for safety and efficacy still stand. And just recently, the CDC, I think as recent as last week, published uh, some findings on nine million, uh, vaccinations occurring among the five to 11 year olds with no signals that would, uh, show severe concerns for safety or for efficacy. I think out of 9 million, there were 11 reports of myocarditis, all of which were mild, all of which resolved quickly. Um, some of the, those are some of the biggest signals that we're looking for, uh, reports of myocarditis and, uh, you know, um, Uh, pericarditis or um, other complications. And we didn't see any of that. And so I think that in the context of a public health emergency, an EUA is absolutely still sufficient when it comes to providing these guidelines for what is good for our population. And I think that we will likely see a full FDA approval very soon. It's just an enormous process because there are Thousands and thousands of pages of data to review, but so far all the signs are pointing to this being, um, you know, very much a good and safe thing to do for our children.
3: Alexis, can I just add that? Absolutely. That, you know, I, I understand, of course, the concerns. I don't have little kids anymore, but I'm I'm sure I would be have some concerns as well. But in addition to what uh, what Jessica said, and I completely agree with, uh, if I was worried about the long term side effects of a thing, it would be COVID. Yeah, you know, by a factor of hundred to one. I mean, I think we now know a a lot, a tremendous amount about the vaccines and their breathtaking safety and their extraordinary efficacy. And uh, you know, there really are, are are no reported cases of vaccines that led to problems that didn't materialize in the first several months. What I would have a little bit of worry about is, you know, is what do we know about what happens if a kid gets COVID down the road? And we don't think anything terrible is gonna happen, but again, there are issues with long COVID. We have seen uh, uh, kids that have continued problems after uh, for a long time. So in the kind of decision about, well, I'm not certain about what's gonna happen a year from now, I I would be more worried about what might happen to the kid who got COVID than what has happened to people who've gotten vaccinations.
2: Yes. A couple more mask questions coming in. Leslie writes, I work with kids one on one, many who cannot be vaccinated. I'm very concerned, as I've seen no data that proves the mask protects the wearer, only that my mask will stop me from spreading. What is the evidence that we are protecting ourselves with these masks? And a secondary question from Bob. Why, Bob and Berkeley, why shouldn't we use masks with valves? Uh, Dr. Wachter?
3: Well, the evidence that 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 the mask protect the the wearer is actually extremely strong. I mean it's it, I think the message if, with got a good early, mask right with a good mask, yeah, with a good mask, right. Well, even with a you know, even with a surgical mask, which is which is better than a cloth mask but not as good as an n ninety five, it still affords some protection to the the wearer. I think the message got out early on that was sort of the public health message. You're wearing it to protect your fellow citizen. That's partly true, but you're also wearing it to protect yourself. I mean, when I go in and take care of a patient in the hospital with COVID, I'm wearing an N95 and I'm, I am I hope that it's going to protect me. I know <laughs> it, it will. So, So, you know, we've taken care of thousands and thousands of patients with COVID and yes, they're wearing masks, but we are, and we're wearing them to protect ourselves. So, I think that narrative that it's not just to, it really is not just to protect the other person, it is to protect you. And the greatest level of protection is if both parties are wearing masks, which is why there are mandates. It shouldn't be an an individual choice because what the other person is doing affects you, you as well. Jessica, wanted to ask you another uh, kid combo with mask
2: question here. Martina asks, can you please have your guests address how to keep our toddlers safe in daycare, i.e. increasing testing of our children? Should toddlers wear N95 masks and or when can we expect vaccinations for two to five year olds?
4: Yeah, very much in the same boat, and so I think that uh, you know kids who are two and older are recommended to be wearing masks. Uh, N95 masks don't come that small, but there are other masks that are equivalent. Like Dr. doctor said, there are KF94s um, that are that come from Korea that are often made in children's sizes. I've stocked up on those for my three and a half and five year old, and I think that they're wonderful. They have the same kind of um, uh, thickness and multi layers that you would see in an adult size KN95. Or an N95 mask. Uh, they have. They fit tightly. They you know cover the nose bridge quite well, considering their small faces. So I highly recommend those. Um, and when it comes to when we can see <clears throat> the authorization, excuse me we did get some disappointing news that it's going to take a bit longer as they have to uh, kind of recalibrate the study to consider a third dose because unfortunately the uh, immune bridging for the toddler age was not as high. There were no safety signals, but they wanted the efficacy to be much higher. Now for the younger kids, it was high, which is great. And I think that this third dose will probably be the solution to give us that data that will show us that these vaccines at this dosage, at this series, will provide kids with sufficient protection compared to those who got the higher doses, kids who are five and up. So it should probably come, I would hope, sometime mid-2022 is when they've anticipated it.
2: Hmm. Probably not what a lot of parents want to hear. We're talking about the latest COVID-19 news, hearing what we can expect in this latest phase of the pandemic with Jessica Malati Rivera, Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute, and Dr. Bob Wachter, Professor and Chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Taking your Omicron and pandemic questions, you can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll get through as many as we can. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Quick question I wanted to answer myself here. Leslie asks, it is my understanding that once someone has COVID, they may test positive for up to three months following the infection. How does that play into getting a negative test in five or even Ten days, and the reason is there's kind of two different types of tests. There's the PCR tests looking for genetic material from the virus, and there are the antigen tests uh, looking for for other uh, things. And you're talking about antigen tests when you're talking about five days uh, or ten days. PCR tests, different kind of tests. So it really makes sense when you're talking about these things just to make sure you're you're getting the right test for the right uh, purpose. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
2: Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Dr. Bob Wachter, UCSF, about the latest COVID-19 news, as well as with Jessica Melati Rivera, Senior Advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. Jessica, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that work. Um, Omicron almost seems like a bit of a stroke of luck. Like, it definitely could be worse, it seems like, even though the transmission uh, is very fast. It does seem like the repercussions of getting an infection are lower than they were with uh, the Delta variant. And it just brings up for me this question of, are we likely to see another variant evolve with similar transmissibility, but more dangerous? Or is that actually unlikely? And I, I don't know the answer to this question.
4: Yeah, it's it's hard to know with any degree of certainty. I do think that we are looking at what's happening in South Africa as a positive sign, but it's in no way a prediction of what can happen in other countries or other jurisdictions. I think that South Africa being past the peak is wonderful news, but it's also a different climate, different time of year, uh, different dynamics when it comes to healthcare, different dynamics when it comes to vaccination and vaccination coverage, and even people who've been previously, recently infected with the Delta variant. So we're looking at that and, and hoping that it is in some way an indicative sign of it could be less um, you know disruptive when it comes to the total loss. But again, this is a numbers game when it comes to our healthcare system. And the numbers as we've seen them so far are already exceeding some of the calculations that we, we were expecting. We were thinking we would get to these 500, 600,000 cases per day marks around mid-January and we hit those before the end of 2021. So it's concerning. Just knowing what that means in a couple of weeks, as hospitalizations often lag, case surges, and we know deaths will lag, hospitalizations as well. So it's hard to predict what that trend will look like across the world. It's also hard to know what the future of this virus will look like because we mm-hmm. know that the risk of mutations increase in under and unvaccinated populations and the world is still very under vaccinated. There are still too many countries that the vaccination rates are too low because of lack of access. I'm very, very encouraged um, by Dr. Peter Hotez's uh, people's vaccine that should be available um, hopefully soon, the corbivax which is, you know, very effective. Effective and very cheap, maybe that will help us prevent the next um, uh, the next uh, variant. But I'm already freshing up on my my Greek letters and anticipating pie could be around the corner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Doctor Watcher, what do you think? I mean, where where do you think we sit in the big sweep of this pandemic? I mean, it doesn't seem like we're getting to an endemic disease like tomorrow, that's for sure. But what about by you know the end of 2022? We had the head of the World Health Organization say 2022 must be the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, I, I'm <laughs> reluctant to predict anything a year out because we've all been wrong. I don't know anybody who predicted Delta. I don't know anybody who predicted Omicron. So uh, if, if, if the past is prelude, we would say that uh, we might be able to have a crystal ball over the next two, three, four months, and the you know it can all be screwed up with a curveball, some new variant that does things that we didn't think were possible. I mean, nobody that I know thought Omicron, a, a a a variant that is this transmissible, was possible, and it appears that we may have gotten very lucky by having a variant that is incredibly transmissible but also less severe. Uh, what that may lead to in February or March is a population that is that is almost fully immune, either through vaccination or for people that chose not to be vaccinated through uh, through infection. And we'll have to see how long your immunity from your infection or your vaccinations last. That may determine what happens at the end of 22. I think we're in for a pretty terrible month. I, I my, my crystal ball only goes out a couple of months. I think February or March is likely to be a pretty good time as the surge likely comes down. And we're left with a high level of population immunity and also more available testing and the, uh, the a greater availability of uh, particularly the new Pfizer drug, uh, Paxlovid, which uh, you know, is a pill that you take twice a day for five days and lowers the probability of a severe case, a hospitalization and a death by 90%. So that's pretty great. It means mm-hmm. that for those people at high risk of a bad outcome, will be in a position where if they do get COVID and we're worried that they could get very sick, there will be this pill uh, that they can take that, that, that lowers the probability of something terrible happening. The problem is it's in very short supply and that supply is going to grow gradually over the next few months. Mm-hmm. Two quick follow-ups
2: from other uh, earlier questions. One was, why shouldn't people use uh, valved masks?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you think about the valve mask, which people wear sometimes during fire season, what they do is they protect the wearer very well against the smoke coming in. And then they have a valve that allows you to exhale your breath into the real world. So unless you are fire breathing, uh, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It protects you, but there's nothing about you that is worrisome to other people. In COVID, that's not the situation. The situation is not only do we want to protect you from the person standing next to you in line at the store, but we wanna protect them from you. And you may say, oh, I'm not worried about me, but we know that one in 15 or one in 20 people walking around now feel fine and probably have COVID. Mm-hmm. It's, that, it's that ubiquitous. So the protection needs to be in both directions and a valve is absolutely the wrong thing to do to make that happen.
2: Uh, last quick follow-up, Melanie asks, I have a son that refuses to be vaccinated, but has had two semi-bad cases of COVID this year.
3: What is his immunity level? Uh, yeah, I don't think we know. Um, first of all, when I hear people say I had, you know, I had prior COVID, first of all, you want to be sure that they did. I just know a lot of people who said I had COVID, and the answer is they felt really sick, you know, six or eight or ten months ago, never had a test, and so we are not at all sure they had they had COVID. There's you know, virtually everybody who feels crummy these days thinks they had COVID, and a fair number of them test and turn out to be negative. The second thing is it's clear now with Omicron that if your immunity comes from a prior case of COVID, that is not very, very good protection. And, uh, and, And so probably equivalent to have gotten a single vaccine shot, which hardly affords any protection at all. Whether if you got a case of COVID and then another case of COVID and that was real, whether that's the equivalent of a vaccine and maybe your two shots of vaccine. That's my guess is, is that's about the level of protection you have. Not as good as if you've gotten vaccinated. And I just don't see any reason why if someone has had prior COVID, go ahead and get vaccinated. You will be super protected. And since Omicron is so good at its job of infecting people, you want to be as protected as you can possibly be.
2: Yeah. Let's bring in Harvey from Berkeley into the conversation. Okay. Hello? Hey, Harvey. Thanks for holding. <coughs> Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, The question I have is this. I have a sister in New York City who needs to get a medical procedure, and the doctor would like her to check into the hospital two or three days earlier. And my fear, she's been vaccinated, but my fear is that I'm putting her into a Petri dish. Mm. How safe is it to put somebody into a hospital? It's a great question. Dr. Watcher, I mean, you're in the hospital. (laughs)
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the hospitals are, are uh, one of the safer places to be now. First of all, we're incredibly cognizant of the risk of COVID. We walk around and deal with it all the time. Uh, in a hospital like mine, everybody is vaccinated. Uh, the patients are all tested when they come in, so we know if they do or don't have COVID, if they if they do, we, they're in very strict isolation. If they, uh, the other patients don't have COVID, and we can demonstrate that. So in many ways, it's safer than being kind of out in the real world. Uh, not sure why she has to go in two or three days before a procedure. I don't, I can't think of many procedures that require that. But, but assuming that's the case, I wouldn't be all that worried. That said, New York is experiencing a massive surge now, and... Um, If I were having an elective procedure uh, and if it was truly elective, we sometimes say, you know, elective procedure is like cancer surgery. It doesn't feel that elective. But if it truly was elective, uh, it would be a good month to put it off. I was just supposed to have some dental work and I put it off for a month or so because just no reason to put yourself at higher risk. But if you need to have a procedure and need to be in the hospital, you should go in the hospital and feel pretty good about it
2: got a couple uh, questions coming in. Uh, that actually answered Welton's question about postponing a possible dentist appointment. Um, Tom asked, and i throw this one to you, Jessica. I'm 10 days into COVID and feeling better. What do I do now? I tested positive with a home kit yesterday. I'm confused because I think I shouldn't be testing positive anymore. Should I still be in quarantine? Tough question.
4: Very tough question. And you kind of hinted at this uh, earlier too, Alexis, of using the right test for the right purpose. So, you know, as of you know right now the protocol was that you are we should be in isolation for 10 days from symptom onset that was recently changed for, you know, five days, and it might change again to five days plus testing out. So I would say it depends on the test that you're taking. It is very likely that you'll test positive on a PCR test, even at home PCR tests uh, for a longer period than you are infectious, especially if you are asymptomatic, it can be very confusing to get a positive test this many days after the onset of your infection. But if you are, if you are asymptomatic, and it's been at least 10 days, and you are testing negative on an test then I would say that you are free to go. Um, that will be a good indication that you are not, you know, with a high viral load, potentially risky to others in, infection, in shed, shedding infectious virus. But PCR tests are highly sensitive and highly specific and can give, you know, air quotes, false positives for a long period of time.
0: Let's
2: uh, bring in Rebecca from Oakland. Hi, Rebecca.
1: Oh, hi. Hey, you're on. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, so um, I want to preface my statement by saying uh, I'm completely pro-vaccination. I'm vaccinated and boosted. Uh, my, uh, my question and concern has to do with masking of small children. Um, I don't see um, anyone talking about the fact that the guidance in the U.S. contradicts the World Health Organization's guidance, which is to never mask kids under five because it isn't developmentally appropriate. They're still learning how to speak. They're still learning how to, you know, understand other others' emotions, and they need to see faces. Um, and especially now, we're seeing millions of people become infected with a contagious variant despite mask mandates being in place. Um, and I just feel like no public health experts are... Recognizing Talking these, about these those trade-offs,
2: other trade-offs that exist, yeah, kind of separately for children. Yeah.
1: The effects of that masking for years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, Dr. Wachter, I'll have you both answer this one because I think it actually is a lot like the schools in general. Like, how do we measure the trade-offs between public health and other types of developmental values with children?
3: Yeah, I'm not a pediatrician, so I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself an expert in this, nor do I have small kids anymore. I, it is a pure trade-off. There's no question that masking is not perfect. We would prefer that the kids uh, kids don't mask. If possible, we also vastly prefer they don't get infected. And the fact that masks are an imperfect tool to prevent, uh, prevent uh, transmission doesn't mean that they don't work. They actually work reasonably well. If it were my kid, as I looked at that trade-off, I would prefer to do everything I could to prevent them from getting COVID. And so I would I would embrace the mask and recognize, like many things in life, there are pluses and minuses. And it, I'd say it's a tricky call. But uh, right now, particularly for the next month or so, when there's so much COVID in the environment, I think doing everything you can to try to keep your kids safe from COVID is, is the right call. I think in part because we are going to find ourselves... I think quite likely in a month or so in a very different position when there's very little COVID transmitting in the community and the, there's a vaccination wall uh, and, and an immunity wall because everybody's either vaccinated or for the most part has gotten infected. I think the kids will be substantially safer and maybe that equation will change to a point where the uh, the, the, the risks of the mask or the downsides of the mask outweigh the benefits. For now, I would, be, I would personally have my kids wearing masks.
2: Jessica, why don't we extend this question to uh, talk a little bit about how you're thinking through school reopenings uh, after the big break and and what may happen?
4: Yeah, you know, if I could just add to to what Dr. Wachter said, um, when it just comes to benefits and risks, we know that at least for the entities in the United States who provide guidelines for our pediatric population, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC, they have made it clear that there is sufficient data to show that it is protecting of this population, but it obviously has some cons. And I just want to caveat too that the WHO does not say it absolutely should not uh, be extended to children. It does actually caveat it and say that there are local requirements and specific settings in which masks for kids under five are appropriate. So I think that, again, we are dealing with uh, very different outbreaks in different parts of the world, and ideally we would not be wearing masks. That said, in the context of schools, I think masks are critical because we have seen through multiple case studies published by the CDC and other groups that transmission in the context of classrooms is very prevalent whether it's from peer to peer or from teacher to student or student to teacher and so because of that in an effort to keep those schools open in an effort to have have no issues of you know education continuity that is one way um, to help make sure that we are protecting kids and keeping schools open. We have to remember that public health is a layered approach. It's layers and layers of protection. It's not one thing and not the other. One thing doesn't cancel out the other. And since kids under five are not eligible for vaccination, masks are one of the best ways we can do to protect those school reopenings. Now, my kids are still young. I definitely have the opportunity to keep my kids home with uh, child care here that's also providing some education. And so because, my, again, I mentioned my risk tolerance is so Low, we're waiting a little bit. Uh, I talked to some parents this morning about this very thing of waiting till like that post-holiday surge, uh, the numbers kind of recalibrate before they send their kids back to daycare and preschool and kindergarten. And I'm on that boat. I'm waiting just a little bit longer. I will probably send my daughter back maybe end of January, early February, but because we are in a very, very acute surge, um, I would rather keep the risk low at home, again, for my unvaccinated uh, child, my son, who's not yet yet eligible. But in the context of other things, both of my kids are wearing masks. And I think that they have now learned that public health behavior. It's this muscle memory of I'm wearing a mask to protect other people. I mean, even my daughter one day was saying that when she felt sick, she said, well, if I wear a mask, I won't get grandma sick. And I just Mm -hmm. love that that, you know, has already permeated her mind that she knows she's doing something to help other people stay safe.
2: Last question. I'm sorry, we're not going to get to all the calls and and questions today. Um, But I I have a question for you, Dr. Wachter. I mean, two weeks ago, the CDC forecast that Omicron was already dominant nearly 75 percent of the cases. Then they pulled back that forecast to about a quarter of cases. So understanding there's always going to be a lot of uncertainty in these kinds of estimates because we're not sequencing the genome of every uh, of every SARS-CoV-2 infection on in the planet. Can we say How much Omicron is actually in, say, the Bay Area or California right now? This is one of my big questions is what if we actually haven't experienced the Omicron that New York has because we still it hasn't outcompeted Delta here in the Bay Area?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a little tricky because we're not sampling every person, so we're going to have to make guesses. And I mean, you can look at the the northward curve of transmission of cases in our region and take a good guess that that is mostly Omicron, because we've never seen anything quite like that in Delta. It just is not that transmissible. So- I'm guessing it is the majority of cases here.
5: Mm-hmm. I don't
3: know that it matters that much. Uh, you know, I think for now we have to assume there's a mix of Delta and Omicron. I think that the, the national and international data is pointing to Omicron becoming the dominant virus and winning the race against Delta, which is mostly good news uh, because it is increasingly clear that it's uh, that is milder. The sort of moment where it actually matters is the uh, is the decision about monoclonal antibodies because the two that we use previously don't work against Omicron. Mm. So we've got to sort of make that estimate that now is the time we're switching uh, to the the Glaxo product because it does work against Omicron. Otherwise. I sort of think you know the the treatments are the same the prevention strategies are the same I think we have to assume that both of are, are in our world but that we're likely looking at a world where Omicron is the major variant and I think that could turn out to be a lucky break as we think about 2022.
2: Yeah. We've been talking about the latest COVID-19 news, that is to say Omicron, and hearing what we can expect in this latest phase of the pandemic. We've been joined by Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you so much, as always, Dr. Wachter. My pleasure. Happy New Year. We've also been joined by Jessica Malati-Rivera, senior advisor at the Pandemic Prevention Institute and former science communication lead at the COVID Tracking Project. Thanks so much for coming on, Jessica.
4: Thanks, Alexis.
2: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Scott Schaefer.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.